0: Is an Odyssey original.
1: This is Kagan X in depth by Mike Simpson. I'm Charles
0: Feldman.
2: Twitter could have some explaining to do that's sure to be much longer than 280 characters. The company's former security chief has reportedly filed whistleblower complaints with the feds, claiming Twitter misled regulators about its cybersecurity defenses and its problems with fake accounts. We'll go in depth into what could happen now. The attorneys for former President Trump are looking to slow down the FBI's investigation into the seized documents from Mar-a-Lago. We'll tell you what they're asking for. And heavy, heavy rain not seen in decades
1: has left Texas soaked. President Biden said to announce the cancellation of a chunk of student debt. Some say that's a mistake. We'll tell you why. Some businesses have found a way to cut costs, making people who work at home take a pay cut Google's tool to detect child abusers and predators could lead to some innocent people getting blamed for some pretty bad stuff. And one Tesla owner may never lose his keys again because he put them in his hand. So he just uh, waves it and the car opens.
2: <laughs> talk, <laughs> talk about being lazy. Sorry, but OK. Well, this is the future, talking, apparently. Right. Uh, wow. Uh, we start, though, with that Twitter Whistleblower complaint. Jeremy Rucker is a data privacy and cybersecurity attorney with Spencer Fain. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for being with us. Appreciate it. So, give us a, a brief synopsis of why what this whistleblower is whistling about makes a difference.
3: Yes, absolutely. So, uh, you know, but in general, this whistleblower is uh, blowing the whistle on Twitter's, um, you know, data privacy and cybersecurity practices. And you know, uh, this is extremely huge, right? Um, and I preface this by saying, unfortunately, this type of situation is not uncommon for, uh, you know, run-of-the-mill organizations. However, this is, you know, extremely alarming for an organization with the size and the reach of Twitter. You know, with just the amount of data that Twitter collects and its, you know, general societal importance, you know, this is certainly not an incident that regulators or uh, Twitter users should overlook, you know, of course, assuming that the allegations are true.
1: Yeah. So, so what's being alleged here? Is it that if I go and cancel my account and I assume that they're going to delete my stuff, they don't, or that they're just pretty loosey-goosey with what they have?
3: Yeah. yeah. So from what I understand, and the, the report, uh, you know, they do not have those controls in place to kind of monitor that, uh, ensure those deletions are, are occurring, which – you know that's uh that's a an extreme no no uh, you know especially in California with the new they that' enacted, but more generally with the with the federal trade commission so uh, you know it's definitely going to be interesting to see how uh, the, the dust settles on this one
2: and there's also the issue is they're not about fake accounts right which is which goes to the heart of Elon Musk's uh sort of on again off again on again off again acquisition of Twitter for what forty four billion dollars his contention that they haven't been leveling with him about how many fake accounts they might have. And isn't this whistleblower saying, along with other things, that uh, they're not telling the truth about that either?
3: That, that's very true. Uh, and, you know, this, um, this is certainly good news for, for Mr. Musk here, uh, you know, assuming that the the, uh, the allegations are true, um, you know, in a typical purchase agreement, you know, there are typ- there's typically language in there that allows for Uh, And out if there's intentionally misleading representations or things like that. So assuming that this is true, you know, it borders on that uh, intentional uh, misrepresentation language
1: here. Remember the guy that got into the the Trump account and took it away for a day? I mean, they've had time to fix things because that's another part of this saying, like, too many people have access to the dashboards for all of our accounts when really they shouldn't.
4: Absolutely,
3: and, and that's one of the uh, the controls that I always advise my my clients to implement: access controls. Right. That means giving employees, um, you know, access to information on an as-needed basis. Right. There should be no one uh, employee within any organization that has access to all information, especially sensitive information. Uh, so it, it's going to be interesting again to see how the regulators come down on that, because uh, essentially the law say that um, you know companies should implement reasonable security. Well, if these types of controls are not in place, it's hard to meet that that threshold there.
2: Yeah, I should point out, of course, that Twitter has issued a statement saying, look, this guy was fired from the company, and they're sort of trying to paint this person as being a malcontent. Um, I know you, you are not in a position to know which side is telling the truth, but does one side ring truer to you than the other?
3: Well, you know... I deal with uh, tons of organizations of all sizes. And, and like I, I mentioned it in the beginning, this is not an uncommon situation. So,
1: um,
3: you know, without saying uh, who's, who's to fault or, or, or not, um, <laughs> it, I'll just leave it with it's not uncommon.
1: <laughs> all right. Jeremy Rucker, data privacy and cybersecurity attorney with Spencer Fain.
2: Uh, right now, though, uh, more legal drama over former President Trump and the documents seized by the FBI at Mar-a-Lago The former president's lawyers have asked a federal judge to stop the FBI from reviewing the documents until a neutral special master can be appointed. Jan Ronis is a criminal defense attorney, legal analyst with extensive experience working in the federal court system. Jan, thanks for being with us. So for people who are saying, what the heck is a special master? What is it?
5: Well, it's not unusual in, say, for example, criminal cases where a search warrant is executed upon an attorney's office and um, a lot of documents are seized related to other clients, and it it certainly impacts the attorney-client privilege. So under those circumstances, I've seen judges appoint what's called, quote, a special master uh, to take a look at the files to make sure that other attorney-client relationships aren't compromised. So in the context of a, of a criminal case I've, case, I've seen that happen. It kind of makes sense. I, it doesn't offend my sense of justice in, in this case, but the problem is uh, presumably these are top secret and or super secret uh, documents, and then a special master would have to be cleared to see whether he or she has the authority to examine those kind of documents as well. So, I mean, it's something that I've never encountered before in the political sphere, but certainly not unheard of and maybe something worth considering.
1: I'm seeing people also say that, you know, this could have been done weeks or months ago when they were well, doing right. this back and forth yeah, over, right. you know, do you need to give us these back? And then, you know, instead of holding them all this time and having the FBI search your place and now asking for it, I mean, we could have crossed this bridge a long time ago.
5: Right. I mean, exactly. I thought that very same thing. I mean, the, the con- in, in concept, it isn't that crazy of an idea. However, as you say, this has gone on too long. They've kind of piecemeal these things out. Uh, they had to go to the extraordinary uh, effort to get a, a search warrant to retrieve these documents, even after making a number of presumably entreaties to Donald Trump and his people to get these documents turned over where they belong. And so you're, you're right. I'm just trying to look at, to some extent, both sides of the issue to say, well, maybe that might be a reasonable approach, but I think it's long past due. and I think they ought to do it the way they usually do it uh, when they receive items subject to a search warrant, go through it through the same channels that they would uh, apply in any other case.
2: So so let's see if we could walk through what is likely to happen with this, since most uh, people, especially critics of Mr. Trump, will argue that everything he does is is designed to stall, stall, and stall. So he asks, his legal team asks the judge, right, to approve this special master. Let's say the judge says, no, I presume that Mr. Trump can appeal. And if he loses the appeal, he can appeal the loss on the appeal, right?
5: Well, that's, uh, I mean, look, like I say, I haven't heard of this ever being proposed, particularly in a political context before. I certainly in the legal context related to search warrants of, of executed upon the offices of attorneys and other uh, types of businesses. But um you always, have the, you always have the right to appeal. I think it would be a novel issue before the court of appeal, and, and perhaps the court wouldn't even entertain it. Uh, in the meantime, uh, there's nothing to stop the Department of Justice of going through, uh, and the National Archives and any other uh, intelligence agencies that are anxious to see these documents, there's nothing to stop them from going through them in the meantime until such time as a judge tells you to stop. So, I think the trains already left the station on that issue, and hopefully they're, they're have, they, because they wanted them so badly, they've been gone through by now, and if not, there's no reason why they shouldn't have been.
1: Let's take one of the other issues, that search warrant affidavit. Uh, right. How much do you think we'll actually see from that? The judge is saying, you know what, we're going to have some meetings, we're going to talk about uh, redacting a lot of this, right. uh, the media wants all of it. The uh, Justice Department says, no, we can't give you a roadmap to everything. So right. what comes from this?
5: Well, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of search search warrant affidavits in my life, and there's hundreds that I oftentimes can't see because they can be sealed to protect the identity of of cooperators and informants whose whose uh, safety may be imperiled by the disclosure of, of their names. And so I think the same rules apply to this. Uh, look, when they uh, executed this search warrant, my thoughts as a lawyer were, my, my gosh, there must be some high-powered uh, cooperators or informants in the Trump, former President Trump's um, you know, team, whoever, you know, surrounds him now as former president, and somebody must have uh, gone to the authorities and said, look, these things are here and this is what they, um, this is what they involve. And imagine how imperiled uh, that person's safety may be given today's environment um, with so many of these right-wing groups. Imagine how insecure that person would feel if their name was disclosed to the public. I mean, look what's happened uh you know, to the FBI agents whose, whose identities were revealed by certain of these groups. I mean, they've certainly received threats. And and so I think that there are rules that will protect uh, confidential sources, and I think that you'll see a very redacted uh, document and not being able to figure out how where the information came from.
1: Jan Ronis, criminal defense attorney, legal analyst.
2: And coming up, some companies now are telling people they can work from home if, ready for this, If they take a pay cut and how far would you go to make sure you never lose your car keys? How far would you go, Mike? Oh, I wouldn't do what this guy did. No, we'll find out later what he did, but (laughs) (laughs) he's not going to lose the key. That's for sure.
1: All right. Right now, uh, storms led to historic rain in Texas, pounding the Dallas Fort Worth area. Rainfall not seen in about a century led to flooding, even a death. East Dallas got more than 15 inches in about 24 hours. With us is LP Phillips, reporter for KRLD News Radio in Dallas. LP, thanks for being with us. So, what was this like to sit through?
4: It, a lot of it happened overnight. I mean, people literally uh, slept through a lot of this. But it, once it once it started coming down, I mean, it was just like a downpour that wouldn't stop. It kind of it froze in one area, and it was just like an unreal amount of water just falling. And I mean, you know, you, you get these things once in a while they move on. This one just didn't go anywhere.
2: Now, I mean, Dallas, of course, is a pretty big city. How much of it was essentially underwater?
4: Underwater, it's kind of a, you're right, it's a big city. The west side didn't get belted as much as the east side. Then you got the suburbs, and that's where it really kind of congealed and came together. Uh, The southeast part of the area, there's little towns in there, and that's where the flooding, they actually needed to go get people and get them out. Now, there was flooding in the city, like the underpasses and stuff. Uh, yeah, people that had driven that for years just didn't think it was that deep, and they drove in there, all of a sudden they're up to their, uh, you know, halfway up their uh, their their side windows with water, and they needed to bail out and get out of those things. But mostly, I'd say to the, the east and the southeast is where it really came down hard and just collected.
1: Did you guys get enough forewarning, or was this like, uh, okay, we've gotten a storm, and then all of a sudden this is a huge storm? Or did they know a few days out this is going to be a record breaker?
4: I, ready for it we were told it could be i mean you get these uh, and and you know how the you've seen the tv weather guys they hype anything that's coming and it's something like calling wolf uh we were told it could get bad i don't think anyone thought it was going to be this bad we were kind of on alert but we weren't thinking it was going to be that bad and that monumental all
1: right that's lp phillips there reporter krld news radio in dallas
2: This is KX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman.
1: If you're still paying off the student loans, relief's coming depending on how much money you make. White House set to announce a plan tomorrow to forgive at least $10,000 for those who make less than $125,000 a year. Now, tomorrow's
2: announcement will also include a four-month extension of payment freezes. Now, this sounds great for those who owe money, but there could be larger consequences. With us is Ben Ritz, director of the Progressive Policy Institute's Center for Funding America's Future. He just wrote a, uh, an op-ed in The Hill. It was titled, Six Reasons Biden Should Not Cancel Student Debt. So with us now is Ben. Ben, uh, thanks for being with us on, on the show. Tick off very, very quickly, and then we can get into more detail, the six reasons.
6: Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so, bro- broadly speaking, the reason why we think that it's a mistake to do this broad student debt cancellation is that it's it's not particularly progressive. Um, it's it's generally a benefit for pe- for affluent people who went to college and have the benefits of a college degree uh, for their income and job prospects. And it's paid for uh, whether that's through higher inflation today or higher taxes and spending cuts tomorrow. Uh, it's paid for by workers who don't have those same opportunities. So I think that's that's the overarching reason, but it also would undermine the recently passed uh, inflation reduction act uh because that bill would reduce inflation by reducing the budget deficit and this basically spends all of those savings um it would uh it doesn't address the real problems of college affordability so it will likely fuel higher tuition rather than uh rather than bringing it down and it just creates a bigger problem for the next generation it has it sets a dangerous precedent because it's by executive order? Congress never really intended the president to be able to unilaterally spend 200 billion dollars without explicit congressional approval, uh, and it's it's pretty bad politics. The um, only 13% of Americans have student debt, and you know as I said before, there they tend to have more opportunities than workers who don't go to college, and so uh, we think that's not going to be particularly beneficial. And then lastly, there are better tools available to help struggling borrowers, and there's no real good reason to do this blanket debt forgiveness when there are better options.
1: Well, let's take that last one then. What should be done, in your view?
6: So I think there are, there are three things that should be done. The first, uh, which President Biden has already been doing somewhat, is uh, targeted relief for certain distressed borrowers. So uh, he's already done a record amount of debt forgiveness for these people, $32 billion for borrowers who were defrauded or permanently disabled uh, or through the public service loan forgiveness program. So we can continue to take those actions. Uh, the second thing would be uh, expanding and reforming income-driven repayment programs. Uh, these programs, uh, instead of doing a one-time lump sum debt forgiveness based on your income this year, uh, which uh, we think that's problematic, because uh, somebody who is a recent... Um, Uh, law or medical school graduate will have a high lifetime income, most likely, but might not have a big income right when they graduate. And so it can be it can be distortionary there. Uh, What we like about income driven repayment programs is it has people paying a certain uh, amount, a certain percentage of their income towards debt repayment for a certain number of years. And then at the end of those Years, whether it's ten or fifteen or twenty, uh, that debt is forgiven, and so it, it makes sure that debt doesn't pose a burden on people who have the debt of a college degree without getting the income benefits. But it also protects against giving these big giveaways to people who have high incomes.
2: Is, uh, is there, I'm going to cut you short because I want I want to ask this this question here. Is it uh, one of the other issues? And I think it was one of the things you wrote. Um, that there's always the possibility that the president will grant this relief, people will then rightly presume that the debt has now been wiped off. But if a court at a later date decides he didn't have the power to do that, then what? That's a great question.
6: And I think that's you know that's one of the biggest problems here is is exactly that scenario. Uh, I think that right now when the when Congress passed. The, the Higher Education Act and created the student loan program uh, way back in the 60s. They gave the president discretion to administer this program and grant targeted relief to again those those particular groups like defrauded borrowers. There was never this intention uh, that it it be used for this this broad uh, multi hundred billion dollar cancellation. And there's a real risk that uh, even a politically neutral Supreme Court. Uh, would say this is beyond the scope of what Congress intended. And I think it's especially unlikely given that the current Supreme Court has uh, two Republican appointees for every Democratic appointee. So I, I think it's a real risk. Uh, and it's, it's not a good situation if the president then has to go to these people who he promised, essentially promised $10,000 to, uh, and then a year from now has to say, actually, no, sorry, that was a mistake.
1: Ben Ritz at the Progressive Policy Institute, the op-ed in The Hill, six reasons Biden should not cancel student debt.
2: Working from home has been a luxury many people enjoy. It's even helped companies, too, by lowering costs and leading to an increase in productivity.
1: But some businesses now using it as a way to lower costs even more at the expense of the worker. They're paying remote workers less. The Working From Home Project found about four in ten businesses plan to use remote work as a way to save money either by cutting pay or hiring people where the cost of living is cheaper. Paul McDonald, senior executive director at the employment firm, Robert half Paul, thanks for being with us. So even before the pandemic, sometimes people would move to a lower cost area and maybe the salary would get docked because of that. Is this like the next step? Hey, if you're going to stay home, then we're going to reduce what you make.
0: Well, no. I, you know, thanks for having me on. And it's not something we're seeing at Robert Half, quite frankly. Uh, we're seeing a, in the professional marketplace for um, employees and job seekers, it's very robust right now. There's still a lot of jobs being added. Last month in July, five over five thousand or 500,000 jobs were added, unemployment at 3.5%. And Another unemployment rate that usually isn't covered, but um, I we've covered um, quite closely college degreed workers, two percent unemployment. So we're not seeing the, the phenomena hit uh, like you like the article said in The Times and in what others are talking about.
2: But let's talk about the principle of cutting someone's pay if they decide to work from home. Uh, Shouldn't somebody be paid because of the skill set that they bring to whatever the job it is they're doing, regardless of whether they're doing it? So long as it's a job that can be done off the premises, shouldn't they be paid for the skills they have, whether they do it from an office building nine to five or they do it from home, you know, seven to whenever?
0: That's exactly um, what we're seeing. Um, I have um, knowledge of a, of a company and a client that we service that hired a senior tax manager. That person that they hired is in, um, in Florida. They're paying the person um, handsomely as if they were located in Los Angeles. So we're seeing tech workers. Kansas City hired a, um, a coder that can work remotely. And that com- the company was a Bay Area company. They paid them as if they were just one of the um, employees, either remote, hybrid, or in-person. We're finding that the par- there's parity across, and it's just for the skills, as you mentioned. The skills are what they are and being paid accordingly.
1: Well, let's say the labor market isn't so tight, though, and more of these companies try to do this. They're going to say, what, um, you save on commuting and the wardrobe and all the other expenses, but can't you come back with, well, you know, there's all these surveys that show actually the teleworkers spend more time on the job than the workers in the office do. So you're getting benefits, too, because <laughs> people aren't ripping themselves away from the computer. all. I mean, some people are watching TV, right? Well, we understand. Well, but not. other people are like working as soon as they get up with a cup of coffee and then working all the way through dinner because the laptop's right there.
0: We have found that people are working harder in during this pandemic and remotely because, again, remember, we were. What used to be a nice, um, a nice benefit you negotiated. We had negotiations with clients that said, "Okay, this candidate would like one day a week at home." That was a nice to have. That was a nice benefit. Then we were just thrust into this pandemic, and we were all in a remote um, setting, and now hybrid and in person. There's three categories, but what it comes down to is individuals are, you know, switching jobs or staying in jobs for compensation for advancement and training, um, and flexibility. So we're finding that companies that are offering these flexibil- flexible work options are really winning the day in a low unemployment marketplace. If un- I'm not an economist, so I don't know what's gonna happen I'm in the future. I know there's a lot of talk about recession and so forth, but I deal with the data that is given to us. Right now, people are working hard at home we were forced into um, remote work during the pandemic. and we're finding that burnout is real and that we' we're coaching people and coaching clients to coach their employees that listen, make sure that person's not, instead of their commute, you know have them do something else and they can start their work at 8 a.m as opposed to seven o'clock when they normally would be commuting in the morning or late at night after their job res- or their home responsibilities are done. We're finding people logging in, responding to emails you know, and and so forth.
2: So should it be the other way around then? Should employees say, hey, look, I'm working from home. I'm doing a lot more work. I want a lot more money than somebody coming into the office.
0: Well, I I think that's a really valid point. I don't know how many employers are going to, um, you know, coach their person to work 80 hours a week. Um, If the job's a a 40-hour-a-week job and there's overtime involved or there's minimal overtime required or expected, then the discipline has to be on the employee side, as well as the employer on coaching their employee to not be so, you know, gung ho all the time. They're, the work's going to get done, but the propensity for some of these high strivers and high flyers and high potential individuals, they want they want to prove their worth. And that's where the boundaries have to be set for the good employer to make sure that the, the, the mental health um, is, is first and foremost for the employee.
1: Do you think a lot of these companies end up going with this kind of 3 days in, 2 days out model? That kind of seems to be where where things have settled, no?
0: It it seems to be that. I mean, choice is really what you know, what's what's winning the day right now. It's like for instance, we we at Robert Half say, you know, in person with a purpose. Just don't come in to the office for, you know, to, to show your face. You don't need to. As long as you're productive, as long as you're, you know, you're in communication with your manager in person with a purpose is something that we've really been hearing more of with our clients. And we're we're actually subscribing to that ourselves. It's like, you know, remote. Is, is fine. We have some, like I mentioned before, Kansas City or Boise, um, great destinations for individuals these days that have been hired by California firms or East Coast firms. Um, but it, if it, there's a training, if there's a groups uh, meeting that is required, yeah, that's something that you wanna show up for. If you can't show up, thank goodness there's good technology today, either Zoom or Teams that can bring people together um, face-to-face and voice-to-voice.
1: Paul McDonald there, Senior Executive Director, the employment firm Robert Half. Paul, thanks.
2: So a little bit of of news here. Uh, yes, mark your calendars. Yeah, on uh, the 6th of October, that's a Thursday, right? Yes. Uh, Mike and I are going to be hosting a mayoral debate uh, with uh, Karen Bass and Rick Caruso for the mayor of the city of Los Angeles. We're really uh, excited about that. Um, and it's going to be here at uh, KNX in a really very nice sound space studios, yep. which is really nice.
1: Live on the radio. We'll be streaming it online, too, so you can see us, you can hear us wherever you are, and the candidates uh, right here with us for an hour. And the more
2: details we have, we, of course, will pass that on to you folks as soon as we, we have them, but uh, it, it should be a, a, a very vibrant debate.
1: Yes, we'll use that word. Vibrant. vibrant? I like yes. that. Vibrant debate. Vibrant coming your way in October. Yeah. You'll hear more about that as uh, we move forward. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Google has this tool that can find abusive pictures of kids. It sounds helpful. It lead to problems, though, for innocent people at times. And there's a recent example of this.
2: Yeah, a recent New York Times story highlights the case of a man who took a picture of his child to show a doctor because the child had a medical condition. Google flagged it as abusive, which led to a police investigation and cancellation of his Google accounts, which he used quite a bit. So with us to explain is uh, Kashmir Hill, a New York Times technology writer who wrote this piece. Thanks for being with us.
7: Thanks for having me on.
2: So uh, it is a kind of complicated story on one level, but it's also, I guess, in in some ways simple, too. Uh, And I think uh, you can because your article was very clear. Uh, about what happened, but maybe you can sort of uh, boil it down for our listeners about what actually transpired here with this one guy.
7: Yeah, I mean, um, I cover privacy and technology, and this story was even eye-opening for me. Um, I hadn't realized this, but in 2018, Google had developed an an artificially intelligent tool that's able to kind of proactively identify photos that may be abusive or exploitative towards children. Um, and it rolled it out, and it basically scans, you know, photos that come onto the Google Cloud um, or that its users are sending to people through a Google service. And so the father uh, that I initially met, uh, he's named Mark. He was in San Francisco. He, his son, had an infection in his penis. His penis was swollen and red. And so Mark took photos so they could send them to the the pediatrician to diagnose, um, diagnose what was happening. You know, this was in February 2021. It's the middle of the pandemic. So a lot of people are getting their medical care through telehealth. And when his Android smartphone, you know, automatically uploaded the images to the Google cloud, they got flagged because they were an explicit photo of a child's genitalia. He realized this when two days later... Um, His his Google account started all shutting down. Um, And then about eight months later, he got a a envelope in the mail, letting him know that he had been investigated by the San Francisco
1: Police Department. And they cleared him of any wrongdoing for obvious reasons. Right. Because he explained this. So then he what goes back to Google and it's been eight months. Or did he figure this out in the interim? Like, oh, you know what? They probably thought that I was doing something bad, Uh, but he couldn't get through.
7: Yeah, so initially, um, he he realized almost instantly what had happened, that, that Google thought that these photos he'd taken were, were child porn. And so he appealed his case to Google, uh, explained the situation, but they said, no, You know, we're not reinstating your account. Um, then he finds out about the police investigation. It takes a few months to get the police report from the San Francisco Police Department, but he does get the incident report that says no crime occurred. Um, there was no evidence of a crime, even though the police department had served a warrant on Google and asked for everything that was in his account. So the police had access to the same information ostensibly that Google had. And they said, yeah, this, this, this doesn't disturb us essentially. Um, so he sent that, that report to Google again and said, Hey, I've been cleared of a crime. Um, I've been cleared of the crime, but Google still would not give him his accounts back and wouldn't give him his data back. Um, so even though, the, you know, maybe it would be okay if Google said, we don't want you as a user anymore. Um, but this also came with the inability to get emails, you know, photos, basically all the data that he had accumulated in various Google accounts for 10 years. And he was such a Google file that he was even using Google Fi as his phone carrier. So he lost his phone. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I, I guess the,
2: the, one of the big issues here, there are many, but one of the big issues here is what, what appeal process it doesn't sound like there really is any that somebody who is in effect wrongly accused by google what can you do if you're wrongly accused by the police or the government for example there are usually many different uh, paths of appeal you can take but other than sending an email to google and then they say sorry we stand by our decision what do you do
7: yeah, and it's not the first time I've come across that particular issue. This is very frustrating for people when they run afoul of some rule that you know Facebook uh, or Google or Twitter has, and all of a sudden they're locked out of their account. Unlike a kind of bank or a phone service, there's not usually a person you can talk to. You can't you can't plead your case to you know a customer service person on the the phone. You're just going through forms and. Uh, you know, filling out online appeals and you kind of have no idea if somebody is actually looking at it, um, you know, what they're taking into consideration. It's, you don't get a trial. There is no Google court. It, it, it's a very opaque process for people and it's, that was part of what was so frustrating for the for this father. So when and you when you ask this Google... It happened to another father in Texas as well.
1: When you ask Google what their reasoning is, what do they say to you?
7: I mean, Google told me that they They stood by their decisions. Um, I talked to a a lot of experts about that, and people think that, you know, for Google, this is just, you know, one or two users, you know, among many, many that they're dealing with. And, you know, the the kind of what they're accused of um, sending child sexual abuse material is so toxic that for the company, it may just be easier to kind of just wipe their hands of them. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, I, I did see the photos that Mark had taken of his son and, you know, they are explicit photos of, you know, a, a new child's groin area in a different context. They would be, they could potentially be, uh, you know, illegal, you know, being exchanged in a sexual manner rather than being used to diagnose a medical condition. So I think for Google, they just, they don't want to get into the weeds on every single one of these, these cases.
1: Kashmir Hill, New York Times technology writer. Thank you.
2: You know, when you watch uh, sci-fi movies, sometimes characters will have chips implanted in them. It'll be in their head, their hand or arm. Usually it's depicted as a bad thing. But would it be in real life?
1: Maybe it's like a helpful thing. Maybe it helps you get into your car. We're finding that out. Brandon Delali is a Tesla owner, digital marketing professor who has his car key implanted into his hands. Even posted this on social media. Uh, Actually, it's his second implant and Brandon's with us now. Brandon, thank you. So a million questions. But if this is the second, what was the first?
8: Yeah, so um, the first one was about two years ago. I think it was uh, right in the, the start of COVID where... I was like, man, you know, I'm really bored. Like I started getting really into researching these uh, little RFID chips. And I've known about this company for a good maybe 10 years. And then, you know, I started looking into it a little bit more. And I mean, I've been reading through the forums and everything like that. And then I was just like, you know what? Nothing else really great is going on right now. I'm a huge tech nerd. Uh, I work in technology. I was like, let's uh, let's see what happens. And then this particular chip that I got, uh, it's pretty cool because not only does it store data, does it store my medical records? Does it open the key uh, the door to my house? Uh, but it also, when you come into contact with other people's phones or devices, it glows green under the skin to show that it is making a connection. So you got this this uh, this bright glowing area under your hand, almost like a digital tattoo that you wouldn't see unless unless a phone was close to it.
2: So this was the first chip, and then the second one now is just to get in and out of your tesla so yeah so
8: so that's one thing i kind of want to clarify so no so while it's correct the chip does get me in and out of the tesla this chip actually can run multiple applications on it that are wirelessly installed from this app store who the the company that puts these together uh, develop apps and then you can actually download software into your body through your phone and the Tesla key card just happened to be one of those applications. So what so, else can you do? What are the other things you could do someday? Yeah, so so what's really cool is the chip comes preloaded with everything you need to be able to do a tap to pay transaction with your hand. Uh, in the future, once obviously Visa and MasterCard get on board with this, which I'm hoping is pretty soon, uh, the chip has everything for you to be able to tie a credit card to it and then tap your hand on any terminal that accepts tap to pay. Pay for things. I can Use it as secure crypto uh, storage wallet r- uh, right now. If I wanted to, it does um, authentication. It can get you with uh, get you in with access control, uh, a whole bunch of other stuff. And the beauty part is because there's an app store and people are developing these little Java Card apps. Over time, those capabilities will just keep growing. So the technology is already all there in the chip. It's in my hand, and and yes, the Tesla app was there, and I own a Tesla, and I'm like. Well hey, why not? Why why shouldn't I have my car, my car key, in my left hand, my house key, in my right hand. And technically once the credit card gets going, I can leave the house with nothing in my pockets and get everything I need done.
1: I hear a chorus of people going though. Okay, Brandon, but my phone does all of these things. Why do I need something in my body? Or is it just, you want to be the first to do something like this? Well, well where's the fun in all that?
8: Yes. Listen,
1: <laughs> we can, we, you can
8: open up your tussle with your phone. Yes. That that's, that's the primary way of getting into it. I mean, me personally, my phone has horrible bluetooth power management. I get into my Tesla probably about 50% of the time using the phone cuz bluetooth constantly fails so I would always have to plug in the car. But
2: isn't it easier to just buy a new phone?
8: And that's that's another great question. You know what? That probably was the the, the more the less painful <laughs> one I could have gone. But 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 like I said, I've been watching this particular chip in development for over 5 years with this site I've been you know following it really closely and I knew my primary reason for wanting it was not just for the key I didn't even own a Tesla at the time of me wanting this so just so happened that all lined up perfectly but yes it is right now a backup and it's you know pretty cool to be able to go up to your car uh you know tap your hand on the pillar and then the car can start it can unlock I mean there's several times I want to get in the car I want my phone next to me I can just go downstairs I don't have to worry about that um but and and it's it's pretty cool, you know. It's kind of a fun discussion point like we're talking about it right now.
1: Is it like a fun party trick at this point?
8: Well the I think what gets everybody is the is the glowing chip. So you know I try to tell people about Look what at me, We have a on. cyborg. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the thing. And they're like they're like, what are you talking about? You're clearly insane. I'm like, no, check it out. And then you can just put you the phone clearly. close close to the to the chip. And you get this really bright gle- green glow that, that lights up under your skin. So people are like, Let, okay, well, that's just pretty wild.
2: Brandon, let's talk a little bit about the process of actually putting in in your hand. Uh, I yeah. mean, it is a, a foreign object being implanted in your in your body. <clears throat> did you check this out with like doctors and who did the procedure?
8: Okay, well, this is kind of a funny story. So, yes. Yeah, so, uh, short answer, the chips are encased in biocompatible substances. My first chip, which is a small, uh, kind of the size of maybe two grains of rice put together, sort of similar to what you would put into a dog if like they got lost and you needed to track them somehow. So it's about that size. It's in a biocompatible glass. The second Tesla chip, much bigger, much more uh, intense to get that one in, but that's in a biopolymer. So your body sees it as, as normal. And then with in two weeks, encases it in your own tissue. And then there's very, very low risk of rejection. The only thing people ever really, I see having issues with is infection at the installation site by individuals that don't know how to administer it. Now, uh, it's funny because I actually could have went to a doctor to get this installed, but I went to a professional body piercer who had 15 years experience and actually putting in subdermal piercings which is exactly where these chips lie it's just right under the dermis so it's nothing too deep and they have so much experience with needlework i felt much more comfortable going to somebody like that and so far i've had zero issues
1: tell me how this doesn't turn into some sort of cyberpunk dystopia
8: but I'm kind of hoping that it might lead the way to that. Listen, here, 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 like I, this isn't for everybody, clearly. And, there, and I mean, after listening, after reading all the comments on Twitter and Reddit and all these articles that keep coming out, people clearly don't understand the tech. They think, you know, uh, it makes no sense. And, and yeah, maybe it doesn't for some people, but for somebody who's really into this, who, who I, you know, I, I don't see any real major concerns. I mean, People have things like pacemakers installed in them. They have uh, all sorts of surgical implants. You have Elon Musk now talking about putting, uh, you know, brain computers within people's skull. And and yet there's millions of people like, oh, hey, that sounds pretty cool. So, uh, you know, it started with the computers. It went to phones. It's going to watches. Why wouldn't the next step be implantable? Well, implantables?
2: But, but you know why? I, I think one of the concerns, Brandon, of course, is... Um, you know, this whole privacy issue and, and yeah, you know, your phone is tracking you all the time anyway, but you can always ditch the right. phone uh, if right. need be and and, and and not be tracked. And I think there is this concern that at some point we'll move from a voluntary system. I mean, you clearly <clears throat> decided of your own free will to implant right. this device on in your hand. But I think there's always the concern that we're going to end up, for example, in a country like China, where right. they'll decide, you know what, everybody should have a chip implanted in their hand and not for the purpose of getting into their
5: Tesla.
8: Yeah, yeah, no, and I understand that. So currently, you know, that would be such a distant future idea because right now in terms of these chips even being able to track you, it's it's impossible and for a GPS location these chips have would have to be externally powered to be able to supply enough energy to get a position on you and the chips right now that I have are only powered when they make contact with the reader so so tracking is not something I'm worried about people on the internet are like well once if somebody cuts off your hand to steal your car I'm like listen if somebody's willing to hack off my hand to steal my car that's a whole nother thing I gotta worry about so, <laughs> um, bigger so problems. I'm not that's a bigger problem. I'm not too concerned. And as, terms of, as far as privacy goes, for somebody to try to hack my hand or to try to steal the data off my chips, I mean, they would have to be, they would have to have their device on top of my hand for a long enough time with the right applications to even extract that data. And and I just can't imagine that use case right now, being there's only, I what, think, a few thousand people what worldwide state, that have Brad, any sort I'm curious, what state are you in now? I'm in Michigan. Michigan. So are you now like
2: considered like the weirdest guy in Michigan or?
8: I would like to say most interesting, but, <laughs> you know, I think it depends on, I think it depends on who you ask. I mean, listen, I'm not the first to get this done. I'm certainly not going to be the last. Uh, I just happened to make a video. I put it on Twitter and it just, you know, how the internet goes. It just yeah. Went
1: viral. Now you're tech famous. All right. Brandon DeLali. He's got the uh, two chips in him there in Michigan. That's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow.